Welcome to the Outer Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show, OuterLimitsRadio.com. I'm your host, Ryan. Today, we're going to get you in the millionaire mindset, financial abundance. We're going to be speaking with Miss Laura Langmire, five-time best-selling author, speaker, and wealth coach. You know, there's something I find strange in our society that's been going on for I don't know how long, but there always seemed to have been that being poor carries some badge of honor, that it's something noble, and I couldn't think of a more twisted idea or way of thinking. I feel that poverty is a horrible restriction and that we all have the capability of changing that because when you are wealthy and you have access to wealth, you could do a lot of great things. You can help a lot of people. You can help your family. You can help your friends. And I think that is something that should not have any evil connotations to it whatsoever. It's something that should be embraced. So I want to go right to the interview with Ms. Laura Langmire. Really excited to bring this to your attention. And let us begin. Joining us now is Ms. Laurel Langmire. She is CEO liveoutloud.com. She is also an expert financial coach and millionaire maker. Thank you so much for being with us. Welcome to the program. Oh, thank you. It's great to be here today. Thank you. Well, there are a lot of people in the world that would love to generate more wealth, and they always have that thing that there's 99% and there's the 1%. What are some of the defining qualities that you notice of a person who's able to generate a lot of wealth? Is it personality? Is it cunning? Is it skills? Is, what are some of the common threads or five common qualities you have personally observed? Well, and I've been making millionaires for two decades, so I would say the desire to actually have wealth. You know, a lot of people have just, you know, succumbed to it's okay if I, you know, just have a consistent job, make 60, 100, even like a higher income earner, 200. So you have to really want to be an entrepreneur. That's kind of number one. You have to want it, and then you have to have a system. So, you know, as you said, it's not personality. I have had the shyest, quietest people from all over the world become millionaires, artists, starving artists, they say, you know. I don't believe in any of that. It's a systematic way to generate income and assets and have people invest and then really wanting it. And that's really the biggest one. When I say, what do you want, people tell me everything they don't want but not what they want. So when you want it, then there's a system for it. Well, what if you have an individual who is accustomed to a certain lifestyle and maybe mm -hmm. it's not like they don't want the, the yacht, they just can't fathom the necessity need for it. How do you go from being able to put yourself in a very wealth-like mentality when you have not been previously accustomed to wealth or have not experienced it, totally. therefore would not have a yep. desire and taste for it? Yeah. Oh, you're so that's, that is actually one of the best questions I've had in a very long time. So what I always say to people, cause I was in the secret and I've been Dr. Phil's money expert and I'm filming for a new show now and blah, blah, blah. But I can tell you the the fastest way to see if it's like you said, have a taste for it is hang out with people who have it. I never flew on. I have a private plane. I never thought in my lifetime, I'm a farm girl from Nebraska, <laughs> that would even appeal to me. But, man, you fly on a private plane, you're like, oh, sh like there's no customs lines. Like, it's just awesome. It's so it's a whole different right. game. And, and then, like, I never had, like, way back in the day, I was 21, I'll never forget, I had a mentor take me to his house. He said, well, I don't care that you're 21, you should stop cleaning your house. And I thought, I grew up on a farm, like, that's, we just do these things. 
And then I got it. I thought, you know what it is? It's people who don't value their time because they don't know how to use their time to make money. But once you get it, and the only way, the fastest way isn't to read about it, isn't to watch videos about it, is to hang out with us. Like coming to someone's home who has their house cleaned, that has someone help cook, you know, for them, that actually, like I hate shopping. I think shopping is an odd behavior. So I have somebody that sends me clothes and things, you know, that I'm supposed to be wearing. Like when you hang out with people in that behavior, then you start deciding, like, if I can make more money, if it's when, when you learn how to make more money with your time, which I do, then I don't want to clean the house anymore. So it's not arrogance. It's just choices. And then love the question because most people don't realize the choices. So once you okay, start but- experiencing, and you can still choose to do a lot of those behaviors. Like I have a lot of my millionaire friends. They love the gardening and the landscaping and all those things you could hire, but they love to do them. So then keep doing them. So it's not about not that. doing things. When you, okay, so you made a really good point. So hang out with people who are very wealthy. But if you are a person who's not wealthy, where do you find the bond? Where do you share the common ground? So say, for example, you're Mr. Middle Class Individual and you want to hang out with people who are on yachts. And they say, okay, well, Johnny, we're going to hang out in your yacht next week. And then we're going to go to Europe next week. And you don't have get invited. The, 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 no, I, I, I totally get it. And so what I did, right? Again, farm girl from Nebraska. I've been a single mom I, by choice. Um, I just found the access. So you just, I, I shouldn't say you ask, but you do. Like, I would find out where they hang out. I would hang out with them. I would um, invite myself, you know, not rudely. And by the way, when you do, you have to be a complete contributor. Like, I would just help people. Like, I remember going to some other folks that I wanted to be with. I would go to their seminars, and I didn't have any money. And I would just say, so how can I help you? How can I set up chairs? Can I help with, you know, your AV, your PowerPoint? Can I just help with guests? Like, how can I just be around it? And then as long as you're of service, at least that I found, uh, then you just keep getting invited. It's really, it's, it's not as hard as everybody thinks. I think that most people are actually scared to approach people with money. I know I was. So I would just go to their seminars or I'd read their books and find out where they hung out. And, um, and honestly, at a certain point, once you start realizing it works, you just call them and just say, I totally admire what you're doing. And you're, uh, so a lot of women do that to me. A lot of women, especially single moms. They'll say, how did you do it? I said, I just started making it up. It's really the truth. Now, did I systemize it? And do I have New York Times bestselling books? And now that I have a structure for it, but in the beginning, I didn't know what I was doing, just like most people don't. But you got to start hanging out with the people who do. Otherwise, really, all you're left to is asking your friends, the people next to you who don't make any more money, for their advice. And there's no movement in that. There's no new knowledge. There's no new experience. Okay, so you know what? I think what you're saying, it sounds like when we're growing up, and our parents are always concerned that you don't fall with the wrong crowd because they don't want people influencing you. But it seems like you're encouraging people that you want to fall in with a crowd that is very successful or has wealth that you want to have because hopefully their energy, their essence, their mentality what will rub off on you in some capacity. You're so smart. You're like, you absolutely get it. And here's the other thing I would say that I did do too. That if I think about all the beginning moves and the, like, how did I get here? I actually went to work for some of them. Like Robert Kiyosaki, I didn't go to work for him. I had my own company because I didn't want to be employed. So when I met him in 1996, the Rich Dad Poor Dad book was just coming out and he had the cash flow game. And I'll never forget, I was actually working at Chevron at a job and I hated it. Hated having a job. I needed to be that entrepreneur. 
And I said, well, who's going to manage the game and do something with the game? He said, well, you could go distribute it. I'm working on my book. I said, I'll do it. And he, I'll never forget, he and Sharon Lecter looked at me and they said, do you actually know what you're doing? I said, absolutely. And internally, I'm thinking, oh, shit, I have no idea what I'm doing. But I figured it out. <laughs> I, I figured out how other people distributed things. So I went to, I shouldn't say work for him because my company worked for his company, but I got that contract. I got the contract to distribute the cash flow game all over the world in 1996. And scared to death. I mean, honestly, internally, I'm thinking, oh, my God, I have no idea what I'm doing. But then you start that. Then you get aggressive. You're like, oh, I'm not going to fail. Right. So this is the part of you that's got to start trusting yourself. And I just figured it out. I mean, so 25,000 cash flow clubs later, a millionaire during those five years. So for five years, I worked with another team that was successful, not for them, not as an employee, but as a contract. And I just started making more and more money. I mean, I remember the days when I was making half a million dollars a month thinking, and I was in my late 20s. But so that's another point is if you if you're too scared to do it on your own, which I was, most people are, then come work for us. I mean, work with us, not as employed, but just work with us. And then you get in that energy of like seeing how successful people work and how we actually don't work a lot. We think a lot. We lead a lot. We do different behaviors. So it's 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 awesome. So I mean, I, this is a fun interview because it's like I haven't talked about the beginning yeah, I, moves that I made, but the, like a lot know. of the beginning moves you figured out. There are some people who admire wealthy individuals because of their material possessions. And I'm curious to know is if a person has a desire to have things or have some of the greater things that life has to offer, if that desire far outweighs their drive to be successful or to develop a, um, you know, a good skill set, are they destined to fail? Are you destined to fail if you're all you're focusing on is the end result and not so much the passion and the joy that comes with the process of getting to that end result? Ooh, depends if you systemize it. I mean, here's here's what I find with most people in their they get excited and they want to do it and then I always say, you know, God makes sure you're serious so all sorts of complications are gonna come in. So it's not gonna come with a lot of ease and grace in the beginning. And part of that is because you're figuring things out and uh, you're making some mistakes along the way. But as long as you stay, you know, the path with the people who are already successful, I mean, that's what really why people hire me to coach and mentor them is to help them avoid costly errors. So, but, and a lot of my job in doing it, not just help systemize them, is to remind them of their passion, is to remind them why they're doing it. So when, you know, I, I would say bruises, you know, you keep bumping into a wall and feeling like not, something's not happening. Like I have a lot of clients right now, they're going for a New York Times bestsellers and they're not getting there. And there's a lot of reasons they're not getting into the content. Um, they didn't pre-sell enough, they didn't focus group enough. There's just there's a lot of reasons. It doesn't mean they failed. They just got to keep going and persevering. I think a lot of the perseverance is is the bridge you're talking about, like where people just say, you know, it's just not me. And I don't I don't agree with that. I've I've had way 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 too many walks of life, um, systematically with their passion and focus of what they want, right? That lifestyle, that you know, ultimate goal, stay the course. So I think it's perseverance. If I had to say put a word on determination and perseverance, it's a huge piece of that next step. Okay. And Does that make sense? Yes, it makes total sense. And what I want to know also is what would you define as the median norm of the self-esteem of people who are very wealthy? And the reason why I'm asking this is do you find that people who are hurt, who are emotionally, let's say, wounded or have some challenges, that they have a stronger desire to kind of fill a void um, that they don't have within themselves, that like they really have this, this insecurity that they really want to be successful, or can that insecurity Absolutely. that they have, can their, can their low self-esteem actually deter Absolutely. them from being successful because they don't feel deserving of wealth? So what do you, how would you answer that? 
So I would say yes to both. So um, if you if the the folks that let Photostock, I mean, I've had all sorts of challenges. I mean, all sorts of interesting things I could, you know, talk about. And there's some of my books where, I mean, that was just, you know, total catastrophes. But again, if you have that perseverance and you really desire at some level, right? I mean, Wolf of Wall Street, Jordan's a friend of mine, right? I, I know Jordan well. At some point, I know a lot of those guys, right? I mean, I'm kind of one of them in a different league, right? So when we get beat up or hurt or there's a different motivation that actually inspires us to move more. That's one. So I think people who have had all sorts of hell happen to them, I've had people that have gone to prison. I mean, Jordan was one too, but I, like, I think it's four or five guys immediately have lived in prison and because of that are now becoming amazingly successful because it's motivated them to do something different. Now, on the other side of your question, somebody who's got extremely beat up, low self-esteem, who can't get up in the morning, who needs meds to do it, you know, they've got to go handle some of that stuff. Some of that's chemical imbalance. Some of that, if their emotional damage is so severe, they can't get motivated for, for something else, right? So mine, like mine was so severe, at least, you know, in my little mind way back, you know, in the day, that it caused me just to be amazingly successful to not have to deal with the pain. And there's a lot of people. I mean, look at Jordan. Jordan's one of them. I mean, there's a lot of Kiyosaki has, you know, all sorts of emotional pain. So there's, when you get hit, you can either motivate you or cripple you. And I think it's a choice. And, and, you know, and again, surrounded by successful people, the choice seems to move you towards success. Surrounded by really negative people, like, well, that's just the way life is, and it's super negative, and shit's going to happen to you, and blah, 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 then you're probably going to stay down. So I really, I mean, when I say it's around, like, who you surround yourself with is critical, it's critical. It's so critical. In our society today, they keep on saying, well, there's the 1%, there's the 99%. So I was wondering, what are the three or four um, influencing factors that keep people from feeling deserving of wealth and also keeping their expectations low? Do you attribute this to the collective mentality of their fellow citizens? Yep. Do you attribute this yep. to some of the um, images they're being portrayed on TV? Do you, what are some of the reasons why um, more people aren't having a deserving, wealthy-like mentality? Oh, you're so good. Like, so, yes, who they spend their time with and who they surround themselves with is a huge piece uh, on the upside and the downside of that. Um, just desire to learn is another piece that I would say is collective, like your desire to learn and know that even if it is a 1% or a 3% or less than 10%, which is the truth, that ever, you know, truly create wealth, uh, it's the desire to learn it, like really, really know it and learn it and not have life the way that you have it. So there's a compromise, what I call a compromise or just a surrender to this is just the way that it is, that pe- too many people give up. They just give up. And so there's a, there's a persistence of wanting to be in the next league. And, and let's be honest, I think the, the negative side of that um, is watching people who do have wealth do bad things. And so that's – but it's, what I say to that is that's a choice and then it's, it's an excuse. Because if you want to be wealthy to give and to serve and to do – let's be honest, like what Buffett does and what Gates do, right? They're giving, I mean, hundreds of millions of dollars of their wealth away. Right, to do good things in their charities. So you can't say that all wealthy people are bad. But are there wealthy people who make interesting bad choices? Yes. But that's a personal choice. And I think too many people, I hear that a lot, using it as an excuse to not go for it. Because what I really believe is that, at least, the, you know, it's my mission to, to be here and what I'm doing, is the more lives I serve, yes, I'm going to create more wealth from it, but I'm also helping a lot of people see there's a different path. There's a whole, especially around kids. I let kids come to my workshops for free. Teenagers come for free and That's they never great. pay. 
you know, you've written a lot of books. Are there any particular books that you've read that really transformed your way of thinking and really transformed your way of perceiving wealth? Is there any like one or two particular books? Oh, that absolutely. Thinking Grow Rich. Okay. Thinking Grow Rich okay. by far, hands down, is one of the best that's ever done. You know, anything. I mean, obviously, Rich Dad Poor Dad is a pivotal, different book. Uh, more recent, I love Blue Ocean. I love The Influencer. I love Critical Conversations. I love. I read a lot. I know, I know a lot of those authors are really good friends of mine. Um, and I do have a gift page. Can I give uh, the link to a page? Those Absolutely. are listening. That is, yep. So if you go to liveoutloud.com, which is my website, liveoutloud.com forward slash gifts, G-I-F-T-S. I have a whole bunch of gifts. In, in fact, I have my Millionaire Maker book which is an ebook. You can have that for free. I have my Put More Cash in Your Pocket book, which is an eight-hour, really intensive about how do you put more cash in your pocket. And then I have my whole kids program that my son and I recorded together on how to create a 10-year-old millionaire. (laughs) That's people who are listening right now that are working in various industries. There are people who Mm -hmm. work to sell products. There are people who work in service-based industries where they're not Mm -hmm. selling any type of product, but they're selling their skill sets. What are the maybe the top two secrets of it becoming a millionaire in either one of those fields. So, so product, you have got to sell. Yeah. For whether it's products or services, I mean, my whole money making system. So if you go to that liveoutloud.com forward slash gifts page, that eight hour intensive is exactly answers that question in eight hours. I mean, much more in detail, but essentially whether you have a product or a service, you have to pre-sell it. You have to sell it. If the market doesn't want it, which means they're going to give you some money for it, then don't build it. Like how many people, they'll build jewelry, they'll build a facial product. I mean, I've seen it all. I have 24 clients who have products in Whole Foods right now, and they, but they didn't build their, like, the, the most awesome chocolate, uh, caramel, salt product um, is in Whole Foods, and it's one of my clients. And I said, don't build it, don't overdo inventory, because you don't know that people want it. So we actually went and got orders out of Whole Foods, and then out of the orders, then took the money on a deposit to like to to fund the project. I'm a huge fan of make sure the market wants it, sell it, then go build it. Do not build it and they will come. I would say I guarantee we build it and people won't come. So make sure you're making some money on it, whether it's product or service would be what I would say. Laura, we've often heard about parents say that their children need to know or learn the value of a dollar. Now, what I want to know is how can parents teach their children the value of a dollar in an era when you have central banks across the world constantly printing money and constantly debasing the currency? So what can parents really do about in that situation? Well, I think that, that like putting it to a world economy in the banking level, um, I mean, I would say most of the parents don't even understand that themselves. Most people don't even understand that, right, that the values of the dollar and the, you know, the dollar's by the way, we're printing, I think, I don't even know, was it $773 million worth of <laughs> new you know, new dollars this year and our cotton and linen dollars? So I think that the, the frame of the kids need to know the value of a dollar, well, first of all, I think the parents need to know what the heck they're talking about. So I have to take a conversation with them a little differently. But I think the kids need, and the way that I teach the kids about money is I, t- I start them young, 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 young. And the conversations, is it just the value of the dollar from that perspective? I know the, the frame that you were going for, but I think just about money in general. I mean, most parents, their conversations with kids are, I can't afford it, don't ask for it, money doesn't grow on crazy, and all those stupid sayings that most people do, but they still do it. And the biggest damaging one for kids, especially between the ages of, you know, two and eight, 
when when you say don't ask for it to a child, that that actually strikes their their worthiness and deservability around money because I, in their mind, and the way they process it, is emotionally is that they don't deserve it. So that's the beginning of the screw up of most of the people around the whole conversation with money is they don't think they deserve it. They think it's something negative, and parents don't know how to talk about it. Um, they themselves don't value it. And I, I mean, it's an endless cycle. I mean, I'm working very closely. Sharon Lecter just got legislation passed in Arizona where the kids at the high schools in Arizona have to do financial literacy. I actually am working on a grant right now through um, a, a it's a high school program called AVID. It's Preparation for School, where they may fund and grant. They fund the whole grant for financial literacy for kids. So it's critical that they, they do learn it. I just would question who's teaching it properly and who knows how to talk about it. Right. And that was actually going to lead to another question is, what are some of the quickest ways a person can become financially literate? Uh, read my stuff. Listen to this interview. Listen to this interview. Get involved themselves. I mean, that's part of, you know, just get interested about money. Sharon Lecter has great material on the on kids' financial literacy. I have a program on my gifts page that I'm giving people, um, Never Pay Your Kid an Allowance. So here's just an example, Ryan, of how I teach around that, is if you pay kids flat allowances, it's just like giving them a paycheck with no discretionary behavior that's required. So the way I have a whole system for kids where I ask the parents to sit with the child as, as young as two and three and four, and we put it on a little flip chart and we put it on a grid, we put it up in the house of the different activities they can do because they can actually, you know, tidy up their room. They can do all sorts of things. Some things you do because you live there, and then other things get compensated. And then I have I start the kids negotiating around money really young. So what's it worth? So like when my son was like 10, I said, so is doing the dishes – uh, a bigger task than washing the vehicles, right, or or raking the lawn or whatever the tasks were, right? So you come up with – and we negotiate what the value of things are, and then we put dollar amounts to them. So you teach them entrepreneurial skills of negotiation, number one, um, on what the price is. And then I have a whole system. So when they're by the time they're 14, they start getting insurance added to it. Um, so I'm the bank. I can take out the insurance. So if they, you know, hurt themselves in a sport, they still get their compensation every month. We don't call it an allowance, um, but they get their compensation for the activities we negotiated. So I, I teach mature money behavior right in the household, and I, I teach it really, really early. The kids can get it. They're not as, you know, especially now these new millennials are smart. So I teach a very specific strategy on how to have a conversation about money, um, what's, you know, what's necessary because you live here and what do you need. And I don't care how much money, including us, we have everything that's, uh, you know, what I call a discretionary purchase. Like my son just turned 16, got a truck. He paid half. Um, so he knew at eight years old that uh, whatever's in that one little car account, by the time he's 16 years old, I'll match it. So if he only had two grand, he gets a four thousand dollar car. If he had eight grand, which is what he had, I, he got a sixteen thousand dollar truck. Um, but you got to work for it. And if you don't know how to make money, then let's have a conversation. And you know, my kids will say, "Can we talk to you know Coach Laurel instead of Mom?" And then you know, I, I'm in a very different frame, and I you know, <laughs> I, they talk to Coach Laurel, and I teach them how to do it because they'll you know they'll want something, and then I'll say, "Well, how are you going to earn the money to do with that?" And that's what we'll talk. Yeah. So anyway, I just have a very, I'm very passionate. I've been a single mom, and I'm raising very, very smart, smart little entrepreneur kids. And it's not difficult. You just can't shy away from the conversation. So you ask, where do you learn it? I mean, between Sharon Lecter and I, I mean, that's our passion for kids and, and literacy. Um, she's got an amazing kid game called Thrive. Um, I have, you know, online programs for kids, too. I don't know, honestly don't know where else to get it. It's very limited. 
Now, so there are some parents that do give their kids an allowance. Do you think that in some way it could be unwillingly sowing the seeds of a socialistic type mindset because a kid receives money Absolutely. with no expectation of doing work? So do you think that parents could actually be damaging their, their child's entrepreneurial spirit by automatically giving them money regardless of what their task get done? Guaranteed, they're, they're not only, yeah, I love the going socialist, that's even further than I would say, but I love that I'm going to borrow that now, Ryan. Um, I, think, <laughs> I think they're doing huge damage. They're also creating what I call, you know, uh, a very entrepreneur or an, uh, an employee mindset, is I don't have to do anything, but every two weeks I get my five or ten bucks or whatever it's for, and whether I did anything or not, whether I mouthed off or not, whether I behaved or not, and there's no behavior associated to it, there's no action, there's no result, um, and that's just not what happens in the real world. That's just not what happens, and kids, I think, are being hugely damaged by that kind of behavior. All right, another part. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Go, no, that's good. I was going to say another. Uh, I've seen a lot of sports leagues and little leagues where the kids play. Oh, I know. They don't keep score. There's no winners. There's no losers. Can't is, stand that. Is can't that stand is that detrimental? Oh, I can't stand it. Uh, there's winners and there's losers and there's players and there's performers. There's kids who practice their little guts out and they deserve to win first place and everybody gets a trophy. I don't know where that began. When my son, so I can tell you like uh, it started my daughter's nine and so she's all had it her whole life. So now she's in a very competitive league, um, skiing, martial arts. She, she fights in the ring and, you know, this, I'm just not a fan. Because it is a win. It is there's winners, there's losers, there's performers. There's a reason why some, you know people are wealthier than other people. We do things differently. We behave differently. We're efficient. If people don't think we do activities, I wouldn't call it work because we got to pick our activities. But we designed our life for that. So I am a huge non-starter fan of everybody gets a ribbon, everybody yeah. played. Well, so who won? Who was the best? I, I'm a huge fan of MVPs to a degree. I, you know, who who actually? I mean, I'm I'm a huge scorekeeper. I mean, the data always tells you who's going to win or lose in life, in money, in everything. So I'm a huge scorekeeper. And I know some people say, well, that's so critical and judgmental, and it's going to hurt their feelings. They're going to grow up very differently, and they're just going to know the rules of the game. So, like my son crushed the ski race a couple weeks ago. I mean, took first by leaps and leaps and leaps. I mean, just crushed it took the overall number one and my my daughter came kind of in the middle of the pack and she cried the whole way home and i said well, so what's the difference between i said number one age i said but what's the difference she said, well he practices more than me i said how many hours i said he's probably 15 20 hours a week more i said exactly i said so you, you gotta you gotta play more you gotta practice more if you don't want to then i think and that's asked with everything ryan that's just so what a great question you can tell i'm passionate about it <laughs> did, did, was i clear in my was i clear in yeah, my, no, my, you're, you're, my angle <laughs> Thank you very clear about it. And also, I wanted to move to another question about uh, sensitive to feelings because uh, it seems that when at a very young age, I guess, in some parts of society, they don't want feelings to be hurt. At the same time, the other end is there's a part that you Tough can't time. be too not you can't you have to have some kind of uh, empathy for people. Where can how does sensitivity play in business? I mean, if you are, is it better to be more sensitive no. or less sensitive? It, well, I just say um, – well, I'll, go, I'll answer your question 
the way you've asked, which is I'd say less sensitive, but I actually would change the word to more strategic. I mean, I'm living and breathing in a very male-dominated world. And when I was young, I got pummeled by the guys. I mean, they wouldn't put me on stages. Well, you're too young. And then when I became a single mom, you know, all the judgment, you should be home, you know, taking care of your kid. And I, and I would look at them and I would say, why aren't you? It's just a woman's job to do it. Why aren't you off the road? Why aren't you doing it? And I would just come straight back at them very strategically, a little sarcastically, um, but I think you just got to stand in it. And I think part of the participation stuff and being too sensitive, it doesn't toughen them up for business. I mean, look at our, you know, I call it a reality show of our presidential election because it is kind of a reality <laughs> show. Um, that's just tough stuff. And I think there's a lot more tough love. I'm not saying not be sensitive and help explain and help, uh, help you know, them understand, but to coddle them. And, I, and as a single mom of raising a son, who's really my job is to raise a man, I think there's a lot of single moms who coddle their sons because there isn't a man in the house and are raising really weeny little people. And I see it all the time. And it's like, what are you doing? Like, man up. Like, And I grew up with brothers, so I'm probably tougher because, you know, I got beat up a lot and I had to run really fast. And, um, but I think there's a real fine balance of, um, you know, really proper parenting around that. Sure. If there, what are three lessons that you would want to instill? If a person out there really wants to instill a, a strong, competitive, capitalistic, and tough-minded uh, child, what are three activities that you can engage your child in? And uh, there's another part to this: is is poker a game that is good to teach children at a very early age because of the ability of you know getting money and reading body language? Oh, I love it. I love that. So, yes, I, I, I love – I would say poker, but just card games in general is a great. Checkers, I love. Checkers and chess, like any kind of game where there is that body language and there's movement, and uh, whether it's eyes, sweating, whatever that is. Um, but in general, you said what activities? Sports and music. I think Sports music, number one, uh, music is just been known. I mean, it increases brain synapses and cross-synapses that no other activity does. So in my in our family you have to play an instrument for at least three years. You don't you don't have to continue but you have to play. And I just I just that's just part of how my kids grow up and I'm really I really encourage parents to do it. It really creates a different brain for the child. And then sports. There's nothing and I'm probably I mean, I grew up an athlete so um I played college basketball. There's nothing that can get you uh and I would do both sports. I'm a huge fan of individual like skiing for my kids is an individual sport and then they're in team sports because there's nothing more intense than having to compete. And there I don't know that there's another forum in life for the kids outside of, you know, musical competition. I love debate. I love debate for the kids. I love getting kids involved in, you know, speeches. I sent my son I I won this University of Nebraska, you know, All-Star award I don't know, years ago. He was six, and I couldn't go. I was in Australia. I was doing a different tour. So I sent him home to my aunt and my mom, and he actually gave my speech and accepted my award at six years old. And he was so scared to death, and we wrote out his little notes, and I said, you can do it. And I, I put my kids in those situations all the time to perform and, you know, feel uncomfortable because that's just life. And if you, I just think, yeah, anything where it's an interaction with other kids because they're going to get that push and shove, and they're going to start learning to have to do with personalities – um, be in activities and school. Unfortunately, is not the place. That's, I mean, that's interesting, but that's not where they're going to get that dynamic. Well, speaking of comfort zones, do you feel that on the trajectory towards attaining great abundance of wealth, that you are constantly going to have to be in uncomfortable positions? And if you are feeling uncomfortable or uneasy or in a position where you haven't done something before, is that generally the right path you should be heading in? Absolutely. I, I mean, and the more um, stretched you are, which is uncomfortable. 
um, the the better performer in anywhere in life you're going to be. I mean, and the other kind of activity that I encourage you know families, parents to do is travel. I mean, my kids, Logan, my son, has been on every continent except for Antarctica by 16, and he'll be everywhere before he's 18. That's just my goal for my kids. Because and and not just like wealthy hotels. I mean, take him and stay in a hostel. You know, take him. Like this summer, I'm sending him to leadership camp, which is all kind of an outward bound kind of thing, where they're going to sleep with not tents, with little tarps for 10 days in the wilderness. Oh. All sorts of things, like like all those kinds of things condition you for being adaptive. Like you say, well, what is that all conditioning for? Not just to be tough, a tough love. It's there's flexibility in it. There's you know worldliness in it. There's just awareness. Um, there's sensitivity. There's you know decision making. I love decision making, teaching kids decision making. You know, they'll make a choice, and I'll say, well, what? And I always say, so what are three other things you could have done? So look at all of them, and then follow it through. What's the consequence of choosing one? Like if you do that, what's going to happen? If you do that, what's going to happen? If you do that, what's going to happen? And have them think through it. Don't correct them. Just have them think. And then if they're way, way off, I wouldn't let them, you know, fall off a cliff. But um, let them fail. I, I think that's another one. I don't think parents let their kids fail enough. Um, let them let them fall down a little bit. I mean, don't not that they get hurt. <laughs> Um, but you know what? They're going to get hurt. And if you don't let them get tough and smart and strategic and adaptive, that's probably one of the best words I think around kids, just being flexible. Like my kids, I mean, we Logan has traveled with, you know, Colin Powell, Tony Ryan Blair, uh, world leaders on, you know, on these big, you know, Asian big world trips that I take with some of those guys on stages. Um, and he sat at those kind of dinners. I mean, totally uncomfortable. But you know what? He could do it. He didn't want to do it every day but I, I could send him away and he'd be fine. So I just think parents need to be more flexible. And you know what I find is I think most parents these days, even though they say and they're listening probably to the interview saying, well, that's Laurel and she's got all these resources. No, I was a farm girl from Nebraska without any resources, and I created opportunities to have resources. And I tell parents who don't have a lot of money to do it, then swap with families who do. I mean, create opportunities. I don't care if you're driving. You can at least drive to another state. You know, parents are so busy they don't pay attention to even ever having their kids out of the geo-targeted area. You know, go take them to a city. Take them to New York. What's the greatest downtown experience? <laughs> I love New York. <laughs> you, you know, it's pretty – New York is great. And I love what you're saying because we interviewed uh, Jim Rogers uh, some oh, time yeah. ago, and he was yeah. saying how it is so – your perception grows based on your geographic location when you move out of your comfort zones. And all these travel experiences, they do widen your perception. So I'm happy you did touch upon that. I'm just curious, how can parents – and children really develop a wealth-deserving consciousness if they are from struggle, if they are from a limited belief system that has been ingrained for generations? How do they break out? How do they find the energy to sustain themselves, to push out of their um, their, their cycle that they've been, or generational cycle? Oh, it is, and there are. I'm so glad you said that, Ryan, because it is a generational cycle, and I watch it over and over with a lot of families. So I always say set small goals, and one of the, 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 the goals – you know, I grew up with a huge, huge family. I mean, it was so funny. I was in Texas last week in Mexico, and somebody was from Nebraska, and I, you know, stopped and just, you know, said, hey, I'm from Nebraska. And, you know, I said to Langmire, and there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of us. It's the most insane, large, German, prolific family. <laughs> and so people just know us. It was, like, it was super funny. Um, but all that being said is um, – so I kind of lost my train of thought on your little question. Uh, where, where should we let them? Yes, how do you, how do you, um, how do you 
have the, oh, how do we break out? So yeah. what I would say is, so growing up like that, you know, I grew up in a big tribe, and, and we were fairly related. But, you know, as a mom, the first thing I did when I went to San Francisco, and yeah, um, I think I mentioned, you know, John D. Martini really coached me on, you know, just set up your own tribe. And I think the, the first thing I tell parents that are struggling is set some goals to move away from the family. And I know people say, but I have to live with my family. I need them to babysit. I need that help. You should set up a different tribe. Like I, I'm in Lake Tahoe. I still travel a lot. And I have five families that I have a relationship with where their kids aren't as privileged sometimes as, you know, to fly on a private plane or whatever with us. But my kids also don't stay in a typical household. So I have five families that when I leave for larger trips, um, my fam- my kids stay in their their households, and then I take their kids. So I've just set up an environment of success of how I want you know my kids to be safe and okay and feel like their mom's not gone all the time and they get to be involved in other family environments, and then I take their kids. And so we set up that tribe. So all that being said, the excuse to stay geo-targeted because your family needs to help you, um, if they're stuck in that generational cycle, I'd say – do what you can to create other entrepreneurial ventures, create enough money that you can move away and, you know, get your first apartment somewhere else and set up your own tribe. Um, I have single moms all over the world doing this. It's my advice all the time to single parents who say, well, I don't have enough money to hire babysitters. Or I said, then find another single parent. And together, sort it out, share your time, figure it out together, maybe do an entrepreneurial venture together. Like I have some single moms in Australia. They got together. Now they have a very successful jewelry-making company. I mean, very successful, making millions. It took three or four years to get it all moving, but they shared kind of collaborating on the kids. So I think staying geo-targeted, staying in that generational cycle is a choice. I do not think it's required. Is it tough to do what I'm saying? Hell yes. It is really tough to do what I'm saying. But you have to be hungry and want it. And everything's available. Well, I just want to pause for just one second and bring your attention that we are about four minutes away from the 25-minute mark, which is a lot of time for the uh, interview. Is there any possibility we can go an additional uh, 10 minutes, which would mean that we would continue for 15 more minutes? Absolutely. Okay. All right. We'll do the countdown. And three, two, one. Well, my understanding is that when a person gives you their money, they transfer a piece of security to you. And if that that is true, can you accumulate wealth faster by having people transfer a small piece of you? Sorry, uh, uh, can you accumulate wealth faster by having many people transfer a small piece of security to you or having a few people transfer a large amount of security to you? Mm, So describe that a little more. So you're thinking... So if, say for example, you... You run a store and you sell products, you sell gum, and you yep. have a lot of customers that are buying gum and they're transferring a small piece of security Got to you it. by buying Got the gum. Yep. And then you work in the mortgage industry and you're selling a house and they're transferring their life savings to you. Where, which of those two uh, paradigms do you feel can you accumulate wealth faster or be oh, more successful? At? Oh, I got it. Okay, all the time. It's the small. All the time, it is multiple small. I mean, it's what I teach. My three-day workshop, I've done a workshop for going on 11 years where we guarantee that people make money in the room in three days. And it's exactly that principle. I would rather have someone give you $10 from a room of 100 people than one person give you 100000 because 100000 means nothing. A, you didn't do it, – it's interesting what you had to do to get the 100. Do you know how to invest it or actually grow it into a business anyway? And there's no business model in that. So someone can hand you, it's like handing somebody a lottery ticket. There's no system in that. So what I teach is, is business systems and monetary systems. So when 10, 100 people give you 
right? Then you're going to take that and you're going to go back to them. You're going to fulfill to whatever the $10 was, you know, an e-book, a you know, piece of jewelry. A, you know, I have a new guy that's selling this hemp seeds. and I, don't, I mean, I don't care what the business is. You deliver that $10 item and then you upsell them to a $100 item. You upsell them to a $1,000 item. You upsell them. You have a lifetime relationship with the client. The monetization of multiple small sales, by far, hands down, I would debate anybody in the world on that principle. It is the best business system, security wealth system, and you have multiple people paying you over and over and over and over. It's the only way to do it. The other way is what I call lottery psychology. It's a simple, easy way, uh, and it, it won't work long term. There's no long term system in it. Got it. That's a great. Question. And you, and speaking of your seminars, you do a lot of the seminars throughout the year, and I imagine that people come, they hear you, they get really pumped, they're like, oh yeah, and you know, they they're all like, I'm going to go out and take on the world, and after a short time, that enthusiasm and their willingness to take action kind of diminishes, and uh, they're back to square one. Why do you uh-huh. feel that that happens, that when you do these seminars, that maybe um, only a select number of people will actually take what you have to say and run with that energy? Well, because a lot of them have really um... – you know, I always use this example, Ryan Ellis say, you know, everybody has entrepreneurial muscles, right? There's some, you know, there's some trace back to ancestors with some entrepreneurial muscles. I say they're just atrophied. So if you've been an employee for a long time or you've been lazy for a long time or whatever you've been for a long time, you're battling that conditioning. So the only way you're going to become a great entrepreneur, a wealthy entrepreneur, is you've got to get in shape like an entrepreneur. So that means marketing, sales, cash flow, doing the right behaviors. So um, I think – so in our system – we, I mean, and we're known for it. We're very, very heavy, um, call it sales, call it conversion of people continuing to work with us. And then we move them very quickly out of their environment. Because without support, and people should write this down, without support, your environment will always win. Without support, your environment will always win. So if you're in an environment around negative people who say, oh, my gosh, you went to one of those Laurel seminars, well, first of all, they're not doing anything any more with their life than you are. So why are you even listening or having a conversation with people who are making less than or the same? It's the most ridiculous conversation. I wouldn't have it. Um, and the environment that they're in has got to change. It is so – it's one of our first things we spend a lot of time on is how are you – it's just like that geo-targeted same you know, family conversation. You have to shift your environment. And then when you get in an environment with, when you are supported – and like in our world, you can get on phone calls every day. There's somebody you can talk to in our world every day to keep you focused on the right behaviors because there will be days while you're getting conditioned that you're going to have really shitty days. You're going to have days you're going to get up and say, I don't want to sell today. I don't want to go, you know, I don't want to go market today. I don't want to fix my website today. I want to call people today. And on those days, you're going to need help and support from the right kind of support for the goal you want. And I think too many people, you know, you've read it in every success book that you're the collective of the five or six or seven people you hang out with. It's the truth. And unless you break that cycle and you move from them, and if you look at people that are heavier, right, they usually hang out together. Like most of my friends are athletic. I mean, we hike, we bike, we ski, uh, we extreme ski. We, you know, we do all sorts of athletic stuff. I mean, we play. We don't just sit around. So I don't have a lot of sit-around friends. Like it's the same thing. Like smokers hang out with smokers, right? Drinkers hang out with drinkers. I mean, so it's the same thing with money. We hang out. I only hang out with people who have money. Like, because that we all do the same thing, and we can all afford the same thing. We all do the same thing. It doesn't. It's not like somebody who doesn't have a lot of money can't come and join us, but just don't whine about your current situation. Jump in and start being proactive and doing what we're doing. That's how I did it. I just learned from really wealthy people. I hung out with them. I don't know what the that's hell great. I was doing. I didn't know what the hell I was doing when I was hanging out. That's, no, that's just right. great. But at least I was just hanging out. out. Yeah. You got you got in with the right crowd, and you're hanging out with people. And you know you 
says that you built a multi-million dollar company in a few short years. What are some of the daily actions you took that really had the biggest impact on growing your company? Because there are a lot of people that, that go into business, they have all these high expectations, yet you did it. You, you took a company in a very short amount of time. You grew it very large. So what were some of the daily activities that you partake, partook in that really had the biggest yeah, impact? Yeah, I mean, within 24 months of my company, when I really got serious. So first of all, that is a big piece. Get damn serious about it because it is some work in the beginning because, you're again, you're reconditioning what your daily behaviors would be. And you bump around a lot about that. So, you know, I would be in the middle of writing a book or doing whatever, and you, you realize, like, just writing the book is not producing revenue. Selling the book is producing revenue. Selling the workshop is producing revenue. Selling the gas and oil well is producing revenue. So you learn quickly that sales is where the money is. And uh, so I would say marketing and sales. And still today I do three three top behaviors in the company, which is I drive my marketing teams um, from how many leads we're producing, what sources of leads. Um, I actually don't do the work. That's key. Like I'm not the web designer because it would take me all, all day to design a website when I could be leading 10 initiatives versus doing the work. So you got to get to cash, which means make sales. Like I said, the, the $10, get $10 from 100 people, take that money, and hire the right web designer. And then get leads online, get them through Facebook, get them through LinkedIn, get leads coming in. So even back in the day, I didn't know how to do any of that online. So And I didn't have a lot of money, and I was still learning my principles that I teach now that are proven. But in the beginning, I'm still making all this up, like most people listening. I would go to every networking event every day. I remember living in San Francisco when I got serious about it, when I became a millionaire. And I would go to a networking event around the San Francisco Bay Area at least once a day. And I would just meet 20, 30, 40 people, and I'd get their name, phone number, and email. And religiously, I'd call them the next day and just talk to them every day. And then I got smarter about talking, and I started selling. And i say, how can I help you with the area of money? Because I'm a great money expert. And I just started selling you know, coaching sessions and advice, and I was selling Kiyosaki stuff. You know, I sold his games, and I had all his stuff I was selling. And then I learned that just selling anybody's stuff, it doesn't have to be my stuff, is going to be making me money, and as, I, as long as I can fulfill it really well. So marketing, which is networking at some level, and a lot of online marketing. So marketing is getting somebody interested. Sales is converting that lead to a customer, making money with them, and then managing cash flow properly so you spend properly. Those are, and I still oversee that, and I think most really good CEOs, that's what they do. They make sure there's leads coming in to their company. They make sure their marketing teams are working, their sales teams are working, and their cash flow is working. That's, I, those, are my, those, are any, those are the three primary skills I teach a growing CEO. And to stop working. Most of them work too much. They're doing the doing. <laughs> they're doing their LinkedIn. They're doing their Facebook. They're doing the doing. And there's, you can't. There's too much to do if you want it's to. too much to get done. Yeah, and I went from three point three three hundred eighteen thousand my first year to one point eight million my second year. Wow! By doing exactly those things. That's that's great, and I'm really hoping that people who are listening right now took that advice to heart, and they can just replay the, the that section. I think it's great. You know, there are people who have this perception that okay, you can make money by being generous. Or I guess you can make money by being cutthroat and deceptive. Of those two methods, which are quite frankly, easier to engage with? And do you have to change your methodology based on your geographic location? Like, is there a certain parts of the world where being sincere and being generous is actually uh, more beneficial and will get you farther? Or are there some areas of the world where you have to have a harder, more stricter line and kind of, you know, <laughs> insensitivity is actually considered a, a pillar of strength? Yeah. No, I think it's interesting because it's kind of back to that geo-targeted thinking. Um, I would say overall just be fair. And when you're really good at fulfilling, here's how I'd say about being generous and fair, is like I guarantee my results to my students. So to me, there's a, there's a generosity and a giving in that. And if they screw it up, they can come back and do it again. I don't charge them again. 
but I also know what I'm doing, and I've got, I'll put my money where my mouth is. So, and then others would say, well, you're really cutthroat about it because you, you know, make the adults pay and you don't make the teens pay. Um, I would say be be extremely fair, <clears throat> be very strong in your opinion about what you're doing and how what you're fulfilling the, the widget or the product or the service that you're representing. Um, you got to really know it. Or not, I mean, cutthroat to me, because so let's go to the in my investing side. I'm known to be one of the toughest women to deal with in business, and I would call you know cutthroat a lot. And so cutthroat also could be really towing your line. And I think there are. I don't think I know there's like when I'm dealing in the Asian markets, the Indian markets, um, the South South American markets. It's really, really like it's critical that you maintain your line because they love to negotiate and they love to push. And what's fair is fair. And my pricing is my pricing, and I won't move on it. And I know the like my money rules. I and mean, that's actually probably the good word to put around this whole conversation is know your money rules, know what you're willing to do, know where your your boundaries are up and down uh, on what you're willing to do in any of those situations. Um, I think too many women take the whole generous and sensitive conversation to an extreme. And they keep giving things away, which is why they're not making money and they're not growing, because they're not willing to draw that line and have money rules and have some clarity. But, uh, right, so there's kind of lots of parts to the question, at least the way that I, you know, I expand it. Is, but you're, you're very right in the geo-targeted areas, in the parts around the world and how people do business. And, and I'll say it just as a woman, I can tell you there's a lot of parts around the world they won't negotiate with me. So I have a lot of men partners, so I do that intentionally. I'm not going to fight against their norm. But I'm going to do business there, so I'll just find a man partner. I mean, Kevin right. Harrington, who was a shark, <clears throat> you know, he and I have several projects still going. We have shark crowdfunding. We wrote a book together. We do some seminars together. I mean, I'll bring Kevin into projects as needed, um, and he knows very clearly, and he'll bring me into projects. So there's another kind of wave that comes from that is as a as a successful person, really manage your network. I mean, not manage it, tend to it, care to it, um, stay in touch with people. Um, you know, that's I think not enough people do that, and they only reach out to people where they need them versus just you know throughout the day. Just staying in contact. Stay in contact. What do you need? Is there anything you need? I do those texts to my colleagues a lot. You know, hey, is there anything you're needing? I haven't heard from you in a while. That's great. You know, it's it's really interesting you say that because my father has told me that all my life. He's always told me he said to reach out to people and just say hello, even if you don't need anything from them, just to say hello. I think it's yep. I think it's. Great, right and he's going, to get a, he's going to get a real trip out of hearing you say that. Miss Laurel Langmeyer, the millionaire maker, author. And, uh, can't tell you how much we appreciated having you on. Laurel, what is the best way that people can reach you and learn more about you? Well, there's, there's two ways, and I've actually uh, just added this one just recently. So liveoutloud.com forward slash gifts. Is a is a page that I've set up where you can go get thousands of dollars of gifts for me. So you're going to get my ebook on the millionaire maker. You're going to get eight hours of put more cash in your pocket. How to do a lot of these principles and conversations we've been having about how do you start from nothing or just start? How do you take that small dollar, knowing and trusting that it will become a bigger dollar? Because it's so hard sometimes to take ten when you know you could go for a thousand, but it might not be the smartest business thing to do. So that whole eight hours is in that. My kids program is on there. Um, I gave uh, a scholarship and a 30-minute time to, for you to meet with my team about whatever your situation is. So that's liveoutloud.com forward slash gifts, G-I-F-T-S. And then another one that I've just started using literally, uh, and I just thought of this too, Ryan, is it's called asklaurel.com. It's ask and it's L-O-R-A-L. You have to spell my name properly or you won't find it. So asklaurel.com. 
and you can ask me any question. It's a page we set up because so many people just want to ask a question, or two or three or five. And then every other week I'm, uh, I go online, and we invite you to a call if you want to go live, and I answer questions for hours. But, you know, an hour, two hours, I'll just answer questions and answer questions. And a lot of people, honestly, what's interesting about it is uh, we'll gather up the questions. There will be thousands of them when I do the calls, and they're pretty much categorized into seven to ten things. Mindset, how do you start, why can't I maintain, um, why am I scared to invest? How do I invest? It's it's sort of the same common themes, you know, week after week after week, but asked differently. So I encourage people just ask a question and come listen. Um, I, we don't record. You can't replay them because it's very much specific to the people who show up. But there's a huge value in just hearing other people have the same issues. Every everybody around money, Ryan thinks oh, I'm the only one that has this little drama. It's like no, you're not. You're not special. I know you want to be special, but everybody has a problem. So. Excellent. Well, Laurel, thank you, and I hope our listeners go to it. It was really great having you on. Thank you so much for being with us. Awesome. I appreciate it, Ryan. Thank you. Okay, everyone, that concludes today's edition of the Outer Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show. Special thanks to our phenomenal guest, Ms. Laurel Langmire. And many of you have been asking, where are the virtues? Well, the virtues will be back very soon. Let us acknowledge them and acknowledge their great contributions to the show. Ms. Carrie O'Connor, Ms. Laura Lynn, Ms. Lisa Casa, and Ms. Constance Stellas. To learn more about the Outer Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show, please go to our website at OuterLimitsRadio.com. Till the next time we meet, my friends, wishing upon you an abundance of peace, love, and beers. Take good care, and thank you so much for listening. Say, what have you got going on Tuesday nights? Not much, huh? Well, by a staggering coincidence, not much is exactly what Rob Saul's got going on, too. And so, he'll be hosting The Rob Saul Show, Tuesday nights at 10. It's a show filled with laughter, music, interesting conversations with fascinating people, and, of course, sob stories from the love life of Rob Saul. So, Tuesday nights, 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Come on over to the Rob Zoll Show at TuneIn.com, part of the Ripped Radio Network. Isn't it time to stop the frustration and excuses and instead create a life that you love? Introducing the magic of creating your dreams. Go to DebbieDashinger.com and click on Products. In the magic of creating your dreams, Debbie shares effective, easy-to-apply tools to change the course of your life in miraculous ways. With these powerful tools, you can finally achieve your dreams. DebbieDashinger.com, the magic of creating your dreams. There are many misconceptions about meditation. Most of them lead you to believe that meditation is difficult and that it takes many years to master. Not true. Ajay and Boris has taught meditation since 1973 to thousands of students around the world. You can have deep, profound meditations from the very first sitting with Effortless Mind Meditation. Join Ajayan for a free webinar on Effortless Mind Meditation, Thursday, July 30th from 5 to 6 p.m. Pacific Time. Go to EffortlessMindMeditation.com to register now. You too can experience the many benefits of meditation, deep relaxation, reduced depression, and anxiety. 
increase vitality and mental clarity, improved health, normalized blood pressure, and more. Discover how to meditate effortlessly, achieve deep peace in minutes, and reverse the harmful effects of aging. Go to EffortlessMindMeditation.com to register for a free webinar on Effortless Mind Meditation today. What are you doing in October? Why not travel to the birthplace of meditation and yoga, the source of the sacred Ganges River, high in the Himalayas with world-renowned meditation teacher at and Boris. This region of the Himalayas is considered by many to be the most physically beautiful in the world, and it is as rich with spiritual history as with natural beauty. Here, for countless millennia, saints and sages have taken refuge to perform their spiritual practices. The gods and goddesses are said to dwell here, and for centuries, devotees have journeyed to Ganjo Tree to visit the source of that holiest of holy rivers, the Ganges. We invite you to journey to the spiritual heart of our planet to enjoy a sublime and sacred meditation and nature retreat with Ajayan Boris. For more information, go to ajayan.com or email ajayan at ajayan.com. You can call 425-677-5451. That's 425-677-5451. This year's Ganges Retreat is October 3rd through the 16th. She's been called Paula Revere, the mother of the Internet and even a legend. The mouth that roars, roars all truth without any input from corporate, religious, or political affiliations. Free is in it just like you are. Often imitated but never duplicated. Commercial free talk providing a real education in a world filled with lies, cover-ups, and propaganda. Subscribe now and encourage your friends to do the same. Feel good about supporting real media that supports you and all life on this planet. Take a subscription of your choice and get started on the journey down the rabbit hole. If you are financially challenged or a senior on a limited income, please send an email to maria at maria.net and she will work something out for you. There's never been a more dangerous or exciting time to be alive. Education is a necessity now. Stay informed. Subscribe today at www.meria.net.